So this week we're going to continue on, and I want to start by talking about um, narrative. You see, I'm someone who just loves storytelling. It fascinates me. I love how we as human beings craft stories about who we are, why we exist, what it means to live in this world. And what I really love about stories, one of, the, one of my litmus tests for a good story is actually by looking at what kind of villain it has. You see, I'm a firm believer that heroes are just easy to write. It's like, oh, you're a good person, whoop-de-doo. Like, no one really cares, bro. But anyway, I think, I think villains are a lot more complex. I think villains are a lot harder to write. You see, I think villains appear in all these different forms, and a villain why they exist, what they're trying to do, goes a long way in telling us what kind of story we're entering into and what it's trying to teach us. And I just think I want to walk through some examples of different ways that this shows up in storytelling. So some stories have villains that are almost entirely unrelatable. And this is for a variety of reasons. For example, some stories have villains that we can't relate to because they're meant to be stand-ins or symbols for massive themes about our world or our humanity. Themes like evil, justice, whatever you want to talk about. These characters aren't really normal people because they are meant to embody something far bigger than one person normally would, which makes them powerful symbols, but obviously it makes them pretty unrelatable to someone like me. So I think like the perfect example of this actually comes from my comic nerddom. Uh, it's my personal favorite character of comic books. It's this fella, the Joker, right? This is the villain of the Batman story. And the villain is a perfect example of what I'm talking about. You see, the Joker is supposed to be the embodiment of the evil of chaos and carnage and madness, all packed into one person. So he has no clear motivations. He has nothing really that he desires other than to cause mayhem and to destroy, which makes him a powerful symbol as a character, but I can't relate to that in terms of an individual person. I think another kind of villain that shows up that we find unrelatable are ones that I would call simplistic villains. You see, I think for a lot of stories, the villain's only role is to be someone that we easily identify as bad. Because his only purpose in the story is for us to have someone that we can root against, someone that we want the hero to defeat, right? So these characters end up being not very complex because they're only really in the story so we can watch them lose which means that they end up with very simple motivations and actions that are entirely unrelatable to a complex person. A perfect example of this is actually from the greatest Christmas movie of all time. He's the greatest Christmas villain of all time. He's this guy. Who knows what this is from? Die Hard, yes. There's a huge debate over whether Die Hard is a Christmas movie. I went to seminary, God told me it is. And if you don't think so, you're a hopeless sinner, but God still loves you. <laughs> this is the greatest Christmas movie ever, and he is the greatest Christmas villain ever. His name is, thank you, his name is, his name is Hans Gruber. And I love Hans Gruber as a villain, because this dude is almost written in a way that he, as a character, is self-aware of his own simplicity. Like, there's this great moment where he's monologuing. He's like, I could be a freedom fighter. I could have all these complex motivations, but I just want money. And that is it. So as a character, he's a great representation of this. Because he's just simplistic. He's just trying to get rich. And you don't need to know anything else about him, because all he's in the movie to do is to watch Bruce Willis eventually defeat him. Right? 
I think a more pure and well-known version of this, though, actually comes from the Bond movies, right? All these Bond movies have these villains who are just like these monologuing, unbelievably simplistic, evil people. I want to take over the world. I want to make a big pool of sharks to drop people into. I want to get rich. It's all super simple. But I actually think the best example of the Bond villain comes from a parody of Bond, a character that we all know and love. epitome of this kind of character in a story, right? I just want a hundred billion dollars. And again, he's overly simplistic. His motivations are clear. It makes him easy for us to want him to lose in the end. But the villains that most intrigue me are the ones that we can actually find in some way relatable. You see, I think some stories have villains who are very intentionally complex in their humanity, their motivations, their desires, and what I find is that I'm able, by the end of the story, to see myself within them. What I would say is these characters, these villains, are almost always narrative traps. They are trying to get you to be like, oh, he's such a bad guy in the beginning. And then as the story goes on, bam, there's a moment where you realize, oh, I'm not so different than this guy like I thought I was. It has a way of hitting you with a hard piece of truth in which you identify with the villain of a story. I think one of my favorite examples comes from comic books also. It's this guy, Magneto. And Magneto is a seemingly just evil dude, right, when you first meet him. He just wants to kill all the humans. He wants the mutants to rule the world. He seems simple. But then the story starts rolling, and you hear where he's come from. You learn that he's a Holocaust survivor. You learn that what he sees in his world is one more time in which the powerful are persecuting people like him, and all he knows from his story is to fight back by fighting back. And suddenly, when you see where he's been, when you see what he's trying to protect, when you see his motivations, you go, oh, I think I could see how I could end up seeing the world that way. And I mean, these characters are powerful. I think of movies like Black Panther, even like the Star Wars trilogy with Darth Vader. You know, they start with these simple villains that by the end you kind of get. And I think that's a powerful narrative tool. And I bring up villains because it is a villain who's at the center of our last week of Advent. You see, we have been exploring Advent with this series where we've been looking at the stories of Jesus' birth through the lens of the people that were there first at his arrival. And what we've, been, what we've begun to do is we've begun to piece together, I think, something that's really beautiful which is when you look at the characters who find Jesus first in the gospel stories, it isn't who you expect to be there when the king arrives. You see, what we found is that the first people to find and to get Jesus, to find what the Bible calls the good news of Jesus, are the outsiders, the outcasts, the poor, the marginalized, the weak. And what we begin to see is that maybe 
this moment of Jesus' arrival, this moment that we call good news, just maybe, if we look at the characters who see it first, we might start to realize that it's good news for everyone. That somehow, some way, if these are the people that get Jesus' good news arrival first, then this thing that Jesus is talking about must actually be news that we could call good, especially for the least expected in the story. And this week, we're going to talk about the most unexpected person in the story to be given an offer of good news by Jesus' arrival, the villain of the story. Because if we're really going to walk our talk, if we're going to say that the gospel message is somehow good news for everyone, then it must be good news offered to the villains of our stories too. Somehow, some way, what Jesus does in bringing this new kind of hope, peace, joy, love, is he has to offer good news to the worst of the worst in our stories. And we're going to look at it this week through the last major character. It's the king of Israel at the time of Jesus' birth, this guy named King Herod. And I think you're going to come to find that King Herod is literally the worst of the worst when it comes to the villains that we could imagine. More than that, I think you're going to come to find that his inclusion in the moment where Jesus arrives lights up a new vision of love that we could actually call good news. You ready to go on that journey with me? Awesome. So I want to start exploring this character, King Herod, by spending a little bit of time at looking at who he is in history. Because who he is in Israel's history sets the table for this role that he plays as a villain in Jesus' story. So to start unpacking who Herod is historically, we need to start in the year 63 BC. This is about six decades before Jesus is born, and it's a very important year for the Israelites. Who knows why? Anybody? Don't worry, I'll tell you. It is the year in which Israel is conquered by the Roman Empire. They are conquered and occupied by the superpower of all superpowers in their region. It's this empire that is built on three things, military conquest, occupation of conquered peoples, and harsh taxation, which they use to fund their ongoing warfare. And this year is when Jerusalem is sacked and brought under Roman rule. And this is important because it was under the Roman occupation that Herod's family comes into prominence in Israel. Because Herod's father became a big deal by collaborating with the Romans to oppress his own people. You see, Herod's father was the one who worked alongside Rome to help enforce Roman rule, occupation, and taxation of his own people. That is, until about 40 BC, when in this dramatic moment in Israel's history, they're actually able to usurp Herod's family from power. They were able to run out Roman authority. They were able to take back self-rule for a moment. It's this beautiful moment of freedom. And this is the part of Israel's story that Herod, our villain for today, enters into it. You see, Herod flees to Rome after his family is usurped, and what follows is an epic act of betrayal. Herod convinces the Roman Senate to name him the true king of the Jews. All he has to do is, in return is lead a Roman army back to his own people to conquer them in the name of Rome. And that's exactly what Herod does. He leads this Roman army back to Israel, back to his own people, and he helps them wipe out Israel's leadership. He helps them reconquer Jerusalem 
and he helps return his own nation back to Roman occupation and taxation. All for the sake of him becoming the new puppet king, thanks to Roman influence. Can you imagine the level of betrayal this would be for a people? I mean, the level of just sheer hatred that would be felt towards this person. And it actually gets worse. Because having helped conquer his own people, King Herod set out to entrench his own power and position over the course of decades, ruling and maintaining his influence with two things, manipulation and brutality. You see, what we know historically about King Herod is that he's almost comically bad. He's almost like, you can't imagine someone like this exists in history, but here he is, he does. You see, first of all, he was a shrewd masterclass manipulator. Herod had this unbelievable talent at using the Roman political system to keep himself in power. People would rise, people would fall in the Roman Senate, and he would always find a way to be friends with the most powerful ones, which would help him undermine freedom movements in Israel, which would help him undermine opposition, which would help him stay in power, like I said, for decades. He was also unbelievably good at using the Roman wealth, which was taken from his own people, to manipulate his own people. You see, what Herod would do, what he became known for in history, was making these elaborate civic works, giant, basically, buildings for the public. Most notably, he remade the Temple of God in Jerusalem, bigger than it had ever been made before. And we're like, oh, wow, it's a beautiful thing to do. Not so fast. See, Herod was not a devout person. We actually know this from history. Herod really did not have much interest at all in Jewish tradition or the Jewish law. But he did realize that if he made big buildings, he could distract the people from what he was actually doing. So he makes the temple over here, you look at this great thing I'm doing, the entire time growing rich and wealthy and powerful by collaborating with the Romans against his own people. Manipulation through disguise and distraction. Unbelievable at it. But above all, what we know about Herod from history is that he was incredibly paranoid and brutal. You see, Herod was just the best at crushing opponents, potential threats, people he saw as possible future, just, I don't know, undermining his throne. I mean, it was so bad that in multiple times, Herod exiled, imprisoned, and killed members of his own family. Most notably, a number of his own sons, who he said we're going to take his throne one day, which in the ancient world is the point, right? But he didn't want to think about that day, so he would literally order the execution of his children. Caesar Augustus, the leader of Rome, put it this way, I would rather be Herod's pig than his son, because quite frankly, being a pig on Herod's tail is safer than being one of his children. And actually, in the craziest example of his megalomania and brutality, came at the end of his life, in which his carnage almost went beyond his death. Because in his will, he wrote that he wanted on the day of his death to have all of the Jewish religious leaders executed. And you're probably thinking, why would you do that? You're dead. Well, he said it's because he wanted Israel to mourn his passing deeply. Can you think of a more dastardly, evil, wicked character in the biblical story? I mean, this guy is it. He's the villain. And he is the king of Israel that we find present in the story of Jesus' birth. 
one of the most villainous people we can imagine, one of the most conniving people in Israel's history. And it sets the scene for this role that he's going to play in Jesus' story. You see, biblically, we find Herod for the first time in Matthew chapter 2, in the story that immediately follows the story about Jesus' birth. And we actually explored the beginning of this story two weeks ago when we talked about the Magi, or what we in culture often call the, call the wise men. But briefly, I'm going to unpack it, just summary, a little bit more. So we read this story about how these people called the Magi, these outsiders, these people from the East, arrive in Jerusalem and announce that God's long-awaited king of peace, the Messiah, the king of God predicted in the Old Testament, has arrived. And this scene is comical, because who do they go to looking for directions on where to find the king of the Jews that God has sent? Well, they go to King Herod, the Roman-appointed king of the Jews. And then they say, where do we find the new king of the Jews? From what we know about Herod, how does he take, take this, good or bad? We're going to go with bad, right? Probably doesn't take it very good. But at first, we actually aren't sure how he's going to respond. You see, what we read in Matthew chapter 2, verse 7, is that Herod called the Magi, and he sent them to Bethlehem and said, go and search carefully for the child. As soon as you find him, report to me so that I too may go and worship him. And that doesn't seem very Herod-like to me. I mean, I don't think Herod's the kind of guy who relinquishes power and worships other kings, but what do I know? Well, we quickly find that there's something else going on. You see, the end of that story, this one that we covered two weeks ago, shows the Magi finding Jesus. They acknowledge him as the king that God has sent to fix his people, to heal his world, and then they worship him. But the last line is this dark piece of foreshadowing. We read in verse 12, the Magi, having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, returned to their country by another route. When they had gone, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. Get up, he said. Take the child and his mother and escape to Egypt. Stay there until I tell you, for Herod is going to search for the child to kill him. We learn that Herod has decided he has no intentions of acknowledging Jesus as God's Messiah. Rather, he's going to kill Jesus. He's going to kill God's chosen king as a baby to get rid of him before he has any chance of growing up and threatening his power. And then we read one of the most horrifying stories in the entire New Testament. In verse 16, it says, When Herod realized that he had been outwitted by the Magi, he was furious, and he gave orders to kill all the boys in Bethlehem in its vicinity who were two years old and under in accordance with the time he had learned from the Magi. I mean, this is one of the, one of the darkest moments in the gospel stories. We have historians who argue that when you look at the archaeological records of Bethlehem at that time, you look at the population, this would have been anywhere between 20 and 50 young boys, baby boys, that Herod orders the execution of just to try to maybe catch Jesus before he escapes. I mean, this is evil, isn't it? This is one of those stories that just feels like there is no good news in it. I mean, I have heard this story so many times in history. A powerful, evil person causes suffering to innocent people in the pursuit of his own power, control, and status. I think I've heard that one before, haven't we? And yet, and yet, I think there's something going on beneath the surface of this. 
that is quite powerful, something that gets us at where we're going this week. And I want to start unpacking it with a question. When does God warn the Magi to exclude Herod from the story? It's after the Magi have spoken to Herod about what God's doing in Jesus, isn't it? It's after they've come to Herod and invited him to come and see the Messiah. And this is really interesting, because when you sit with that, I think it starts to raise some concerning questions if you read it the wrong way. You see, I think one way we could read this is we could assume that this was destined to happen, that this is just something that was destiny. But if Herod was destined to do this, if this was the only way he could have gone, why wouldn't God have sent that warning before the Magi arrived looking for Jesus at King Herod's house? I mean, I don't know about you, but my vision of God does not have him killing babies as a plot device. That's not how my God operates. So I believe that Herod had to have gone a di- or had to been able to go a different way in this story. This has to be a choice. This has to be a moment of free will, a fork in the road. What are you going to do, Herod? But then I'm left with other questions. Like, particularly, why does God allow Herod to be in Jesus' story at all? I mean, if this was even a possibility, a probability, if we know who Herod is, why would you include him in the story? Why wouldn't you have just led the Magi around him, left him out of the story, left him to live his miserable life for the rest of his miserable days, destroying himself and the people around him? What are you doing, God? Why is he even in here? Because when I think of my own stories, when I think how I would write this story, Herod's got no business being in the moment when the king of kings arrives. He's got no business being there. I think I would write him out of it. And yet, in God's story of Jesus, Herod is not excluded. You see, instead, I think Herod is given an invitation in this story. I think the story is powerful because what it shows us is that even in this moment with this wicked person, this evil person in history, God still invites him to come and see the Messiah. What's amazing about the story is that it ends in horror, but it begins with God inviting Herod in. And I don't know about you, but I believe that this is showing us who God is, especially when it comes to how he loves and reaches out to the most broken of human beings in our world. I don't know about you, but I think that the God of Jesus refuses to tell a story in which anyone is ridden off and excluded from what he's trying to do. I don't know about you, but what I see in this story is a God who draws a line in the sand and says, I cannot write my story without defining myself by the most radical form of love and invitation there is, which I need to extend to the King Herods of the world, to those we most easily call enemies. I mean, this is a God that despite everything, loves even Herod enough to invite him in to newness. Because I think the invitation given to Herod in this story is profound. I think Herod is given an invitation by God, by Jesus, to come and find a new kind of king. A king that defines himself by self-sacrifice and service. A king that says he doesn't have to live this way anymore. A king that says you can surrender those views of power and control that have ravaged your life. He says, give it up. Find the new king. Find King Jesus. Find a different way. 
I think there's an invitation in the story to find a new kind of purpose for Herod, relinquishing that craving for status that has driven everything he's ever done in his life. God says you can give that up and replace it with humility. You can lay down your crown to be a part of a kingdom better than the one you're trying to make. I think there's an invitation in the story for Herod to find a new kind of love. God is telling him, let go of the control and the paranoia that has quite frankly cost you everything that you hold dear in favor of finding a God that is moving love in our world. I think this is an invitation to come find and be healed by the good news of Jesus' arrival. And I think the tragedy, the horror of this story is that Herod, in his free will, chooses to reject that invitation. I mean, this is a guy who just misses out on the newness of a God totally sold out to loving him more than he loves himself, wanting more for him than he wants for himself. This is a story about a man who just chooses to go the same way he's always gone. And the tragedy of that story, the tragedy of most human stories about people choosing to seek their own control, status, and power is that, like most of those stories, innocent people pay the price. You see, the bad news in this story is that this is something that we always must remember, grapple with, and fight against as human beings. I don't know about you, but that desire to go our own way to get ours no matter what, to pursue our own power at the cost of other people is a very human desire. And what this story tells me is that it is a familiar story that we've been told enough times in history and that our God is trying to offer us a new one, a one that goes a different way. Because the good news buried in this story is that our God's radical commitment to love means he will always invite the Herods, the villains, the most broken people, people with stories just like mine into a new way of being in the world, a way of being defined by a new story, a story of love. The good news of this story is that our God steadfastly looks at people like me, people like Herod, and offers a second, third, one one million chance to change and just to go a different way and be a part of the healing of our world through his love. I think this is the good news story of a God whose love excludes no one, includes everyone, no matter what. Inviting all of us into the newness that can change our stories, that can change the stories that have just gone on enough in human history. Does anyone else want to hear a different story for once? I know I do. And the invitation of this story is that God is inviting us to do just that through divine love, being poured out onto his people, onto us, and all we have to do to find it and to be a part of it is just to say yes to the invitation. And that is good news. Is it not? That's good news. And I want to close just by reflecting on where we might need to hear this good news story of God's love today. Because I just think it hits me in a number of ways. I think first, some of us need to find ourselves in King Herod. See, unlike the Bond movies, the Bible does not give us characters that are meant to be unrelatable. The Bible gives us villains because it wants us to find ourselves within them. 
The Bible speaks to our humanity through its characters. And I don't know about you, but I believe we all have a little piece of Herod inside of us. I think most of us wouldn't identify with the actions in Bethlehem, but we might just identify with his vision of life, his purpose, and his idea of how we should exist in the world. I don't know about you, but I relate deeply to the temptation of control, status, and power. I just know that it's too easy to feed those things sometimes, to begin to see these things as the reason I exist, to begin to tell myself that the good life will be found on the other side of building my own little kingdom in the world, a kingdom where I get what I want when I want it, a kingdom where I control everything in my life, a kingdom where everyone acknowledges me and recognizes me for what I do a kingdom where I have power over maybe the people I don't like so much. And I think that this is how I'm going to get to the good life. What I inevitably find is that the desire for control becomes manipulation. The desire for status becomes an obsession with what you think about me. And everything that I do is driven by what I think will make you like me. That desire for power becomes superiority and judgmentalism looking at people I think as less than me, thinking I'm owed by them. And ultimately, I get sick. And what this story tells me is that when I feed those things, I inevitably find myself on the outside of what God is trying to do in loving our world. I'm on the outside of the healing, the restoring, the renewing, the good news because ultimately I'm trying to build my kingdom and I'm missing out on his. And I just think that we need to, with self-honesty, be able to name these temptations in our life. It's just human. I need to be able to name and face those little pieces of Herod in me, those things that just distort my vision of who I am and why I'm here as a child of God. But the second and more important part of this is that we also need to remember that we're called to find ourselves in King Herod for a purpose. You see, I think enough of you hear me say, you're the villain of your story, and you go, yep, that's me. I'm a bad guy. I'm broken. I'm ugly. I am the Herod. Lock me up. The fact of the matter is God does not want or need your self-loathing. This is not a God of self-loathing and shame. I think God tells us that we should only find ourselves in the King Herods of his story so that we can find ourselves in his invitation too. This God who knows, he knows that we are broken and he invites us anyway. And again, like I said, some of us too easily find ourselves in the villains. We look at our past or our present brokenness. We look at these times in our lives where we've caused wounds to the people we love. We look at these repeated patterns of who we are, broken conflict resolution, broken relationships, addictions, coping mechanisms that we repeat over and over again. And we say, I am Herod. I am the worst, and then we just stop there. And we just end up sitting in it. That's shame. But this God tells a story that calls us out of that very thing. See, what this God tells me, the God of the story tells me that King Herod is invited, which means I am too. I only find the King Herod in myself so I can find the loving invitation into something new for myself. I don't know about you, but sometimes I need to be reminded 
that I actually want a kingdom bigger than my own. Sometimes what I need is the good news of a God that says there is another way. Sometimes I don't even want to go another way, even though I'm breaking myself apart. And what this God says is that the good news of his story is that there's a kingdom bigger than my own, that I can surrender these pieces of Herod in me for a new kingdom, his kingdom, a kingdom that heals, a kingdom of love ruled by a God who defines himself ceaselessly by love. And then there's this final point. He said, I think we, we find Herod in ourselves. We accept the invitation. We say, I want something new. I'm ready to change. And then what happens? Well, it's the same thing that happens in every biblical story. Once you find it, you have to give it away. You see, Jesus in his story reminds me that God calls me as someone seeking his kingdom to be the good news of love to the people I see as villains too. You know, I think most of us, if I asked you, you'd be honest, say, I have a Herod in my life. I have someone whose political opinions, whose lifestyle, whose past, whose brokenness tells me that they are the last person that God would invite into what he is doing to heal our world. I think a lot of us have people that we see as Herod. And the truth is, the hard truth, that being a disciple of Jesus tells me that we are called to grow in our capacity to see them as human beings, to love them as human beings, and to invite them into something new as human beings. Because that's the story that our God is sold out on writing, which means we need to be a part of writing it too. And if you're sitting there thinking, nah, Mike, that's not possible. You don't know my Herod like I do. You don't know Pam or, I don't know, Susan, whatever another office name is. No way she's invited. Well, I have bad news. Jesus just doesn't agree with you. He just doesn't. I mean, it's one of those, I actually very rarely get to say something black and white. He just doesn't agree with you. You see, later in Matthew, the same gospel that we read about Herod's actions in, Jesus has grown up. He's teaching his disciples about what it means to follow him, and he gives one of his greatest teachings of all time. He says, you have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. Love your enemies so you can be like me. And I don't I don't think it's a hard guess to say that Jesus probably would have thought of Herod when he heard the word enemy. When Jesus was counting up the people, he'd call it enemies in his life. Don't you think he would include the person who tried to kill him as a baby? Whose actions forced him and his family to flee from his home, to flee to Egypt as refugees when he was still a two-year-old boy. The person who cost him his childhood. Who almost cost him everything. Don't you think he would have thought of Herod when he says the word enemy? And yet this Jesus proclaims his love and invitation for the enemy. This Jesus says that the true mark of a disciple, of a child of God, is found not in their ability to love the lovable, but to extend loving invitation to the despicable, to the people that we think are outside, to the people like Herod in the world, who God is calling us to love invite in and change their stories. <laughs> that is
is a story I can get behind. And that is good news. And I don't know where you need to leave with this good news story of Jesus' love today. But maybe, maybe it's just that you need to hear that the story of Jesus is a story of a God that is so defined by love that he will not write a tale of healing in this world without you invited into it. That there is a God who looks at you, he looks at me, he looks at all of us, no matter where we've been, who we are, what we've done, no matter how many times we have quite frankly been the villains in our story or someone else's story, and he says you are invited in to something new, to a new kingdom, to love. Maybe you just need to hear that this God actually actually loves you no matter what and you're invited in and if you're a schmuck like me that's good news and something i could actually call good amen amen we're gonna move here now into a time of reflection where at the end of these messages for advent we've been inviting members of our community to just share how jesus's arrival impacts them with each theme And it's just because we want to share these stories of how people like us have actually found good news in who Jesus is. And I'm I'm blessed this week to be able to invite up a good friend of mine, Stan Wilkes, who will be sharing his good news. Yeah, you can clap. He's going to be uh, sharing how the good news of Jesus is a good news of love for him. So thank you, Stan. Good morning, guys. Uh, I'm Stan, as he said. Uh, when they asked me to talk about love, um, immediately I thought of uh, one of the pictures Jesus is, gives us in the Gospels of what that love and what his kingdom on this earth looks like. Uh, it's in John 15, where he says that he's the vine and we are the branches. And the absolute only way we can bear fruit is by staying connected in him or abiding in him is the way he says it. Then the very next sentence he says is, as my father has loved me, I've loved you, abide in my love. So um, it's really obvious that his love is this life-giving sap that runs through the branches that makes the fruit. Um, And it's not just an analogy, this fruit is, uh, this love, is just like a real fruit. It nourishes, it heals, it gives strength, it transforms people. Um, And as the Apostle Paul said, it never fails. So you don't have to tend to it, you don't have to worry, am I dressed right to talk to this person? Did I make them the right food? Am I using the right words? Just love them, and he takes care of the rest of it. it. It does not fail. Um, I'd like to read you the words to um, one of my songs um, that hopefully sort of conveys my feelings about this kind of love. It's it's not a religious song, but hopefully it is a real song to you. Um, This is called Neverland. I like to walk out in the sunset. I like the dirt road they call Lover's Lane. I make the only footprints on it. I guess the lovers washed out in the rain. I like to walk out in the winter. 
I like to feel my face get numb and cold. It makes me think about my father. He felt like that when I was six years old. Oh no. Oh yeah. Some days I think about my brother. He beat me at chess when he was half my age. His heart was like a glowing ember. He made his move and then his green eyes blazed. He took a notion to go walking. He hiked from Georgia all the way to Maine. He said, next time I think I'll do the West Coast. He broke his back. He never walked again. Oh no. Oh yeah. Oh no. Oh yeah. Far away sheep are safely grazing. Angels play, sparrows sing along. They feast all day. That fruit must be amazing. But there's still some things here I don't understand. I don't want to go to Neverland. I got me an old man for my neighbor. He's got a little dog, he calls him Red. Once a month his son comes over. He brings him some money and some homemade bread. He likes to brag about his fig tree. He makes the worst wine that I ever had. He wants my dog to be Red's girlfriend. He smiles at me and it don't taste so bad. Oh no. Ah oh, yeah. Oh no. Yeah, yeah. Far away sheep are safely grazing. Angels play. Sparrows sing along. They feast all day. Their fruit must be amazing. But I got all the fruit that I can stand. And it tastes just as good as Neverland. That's it.